This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Monday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Joining me tonight, Pro Football Focus YouTube superstar, as I predicted a year and a half ago, Austin Gale. Austin, good evening. How are you? Doing great, man. How about yourself? I'm good. Are you comfortable behind uh, uh, the the camera yet? Uh, I think so. I'm getting better. I think it, it's nice to develop some chemistry with Sam, Steve, Renner. Even did uh, my first video with Eric Eager today, which is nice. He and I have a good time. We uh, play basketball together, actually, at the at the gym sometimes. So we leave the office, take a break. So Eager and I are developing a strong bond on and off camera. So it's been good. A lot of things, a lot of fun things. Who is the best basketball player at the office? Ooh, I would say George Chiffrey by a landslide. He is very, mm. very good. He is very, very okay. good. He's also way more conditioned than everyone in the office, so that kind of helps him out a, pretty, a, a lot. <laughs> What's the worst thing that Mike Renner eats? Hmm, he does like to eat he eats cottage cheese out of the carton, oh. which is pretty foul. And then yeah. he also uh, eats overnight oats kind of constantly so but uh, he, he's a healthy year overall but he does have some quirky food taste mm. am i misremembering uh sam monson being a big car guy does he have a muscle car yes he does he has a hot wheels mustang i think is what it is i'm not a huge car guy my dad's a mechanic he's been a mechanic since he was 16 years old but i never got into cars but yeah i think it's like a hot mm. or a camaro it's a camaro i'm sorry so yeah hot wheels camaro it's like pretty legit he, he likes cars who do you hate looking at in close proximity the most so far in the YouTube videos? Because that's something I noticed is how close you guys are. And you have to look at who would be the most intimidating or someone that I would be most uncomfortable staring at for seven and a half minutes. Who is it for you? Oh, it, it's Steve. He's just so big. That's what I was going to guess. <laughs> Steve is legitimately massive. Like, you're like 6'9", six, 6'10", six, dude. And, like, you stand in the chair with him and you're like, wow, I'm a really small person. So it's uh, that one's definitely the most intimidating. <laughs> Yeah, he's he would fit, but also like I would be so terrified of having a football conversation with Sam Munson, where mm-hmm. like I'm just waiting to say something dumb for him to be like, "Well, no," and here's why, and you're like, "Damn it, this this is not going to go well for me. This I need to just um, turn on my in, put on my in, invisibility cloak and uh, get on out of here." I but uh, you're doing a great job, man. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so um, I thought of this idea because ultimately what I like most about doing pods with you is that um, we're really good at just like me throwing stuff at you and you just running with it and um, efficient um, being a PFF guy, name of the game here. So I have 21 NFL questions that I'm going to throw at you and some will warrant longer responses than others, but... Um, I, I think this could be fun uh, for the offseason because guess what? Sports and everything, it sucks right now because there's nothing going on and we're having to churn out content in whatever fashion we can. So, Austin, are you ready for question number one? Yep, let's do it. Okay. Um, worst offensive line in 2019... Uh, oh, oh, uh, 
let me start over. So worst offensive line, the 2019 Miami Dolphins or the 2018 Arizona Cardinals? That is, that is tough, but I almost want to lean towards 2018 Arizona Cardinals just because tackle play was so bad for them. And like when you have that bad of tackle play, I, I, you just really, it's so hard for the offensive line to thrive. It was, it was really, really bad. And I thought for Miami, this year, it, it's going to be bad, but I don't know if it's going to be Arizona Cardinals bad. But either way, it's not a good look for – I mean, not a good look for Josh Rosen, but it's a bad situation for Josh Rosen going from Arizona to Miami. He's going to have a very tough two-year start to the NFL. Man, if I'm Josh Rosen, do I want to play this year? I mean, you kind of have to to prove some of the doubters wrong, but, like, are you kind of hoping that Ryan Fitzpatrick has to die behind this offensive line? Like – after what you experienced in Arizona, it's just almost cruel that he's starting off his NFL career behind two historically bad offensive lines. Yeah, he's definitely not looking forward to it. I'll say that. I think it's going to be very difficult for him to show, you know, talent evaluators, coaches, analysts that he can actually get the job done behind such a terrible offensive line with a poor supporting cast. You know, not a great defense. It's very tough for him to shine amongst a bunch of very bad players and just not a lot, not a good surrounding cast. Not great. Um, I think there's a very real chance of the worst team in football this year. Um, JC Jackson and Stephon Gilmore, will they be both as uh, dominant in 2019 as they were in 2018? I think so, yes. I think they they really just, just okay, Stephon Gilmore is amazing. Stephon Gilmore is like far and away one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. Not Maybe not the best. He was the best last year, according to PFS Grace, but he is far and away one of the best in the NFL right now, and he is owning Bill Belichick's scheme. And then you go to J.C. Jackson, a rookie Maryland product who took on Bill Belichick's scheme and legitimately thrived like that. I expect huge things for him in year two. If you're able to, as a rookie, do that, what J.C. Jackson did, it's incredible. I think he's going to have an outstanding year in New England. It's it's really, it's sky's the limit for that kid because he's in such a good scheme that fits his skill set and he's grasping it so much more quickly than other cornerbacks in the NFL would. Would you have the balls to trade Dak Prescott this summer if you were the Dallas Cowboys GM? Ooh, I, that's that's a, that's a great question. I think yes, for the right price, absolutely. Okay, I'm in a situation where I need to pay Amari Cooper, Jalen Smith, Byron Jones. I mean Zeke, if you want to throw him in there, I wouldn't really pay him what he's what he's probably asking for. And Dak, but I would pay him before I pay Zach, uh, Dak, right? Like I would be I a little bit more comfortable. I don't know if I if I if I'm in a situation. I don't, maybe maybe I don't pay I'll, either of them. <laughs> That, well, honestly, when you start to think about it, Dak, I think, makes more sense over Zeke just because he adds more from a value standpoint, and maybe you don't feel comfortable about this quarterback class in the draft or whatever it may be. But I would say from a pure talent standpoint, they have those guys on the defensive side of the ball and Amari Cooper that I think are far and away more talented at their respective positions than Dak and Ezekiel Elliott are. Well, Ezekiel Elliott, it's not, a, it's not a talent question. He's one of the best running backs in the NFL. It's a value question with Ezekiel Elliott, but for Dak, it's a talent question. You, you have to think you can maybe make an upgrade there if he doesn't have a great year this year. You, know, you have to hope he has a great if he has a great year this year, then maybe you can build around him. You can feel good about him as a guy that can win with a good surrounding cast because they do have one in Dallas. However, it could be gone very soon. It's going to be hard to keep all of those talented players on the roster when you have to pay a lot of them, for, you know, top dollar. Yeah, I, it, it, they're going to pay him, but I would just, I would have loved to have seen what the, the market would have been like for Dak and what he actually would have brought in if they elected to trade him over paying him. Um, why is the Philadelphia Eagles offensive line so effective year over year? Man, they have great offensive tackles. You know, Lane Johnson and Jason Peters went healthy there, two of the best in the biz. You throw that in with Brandon Brooks at guard. He's also fantastic. Jason Kelsey as well. You have four, you know, really, really good starters at premium positions, specifically at the two offensive tackle spots. That offensive line is going to rank in the top, you know, top three of the NFL for as long as those guys are playing and playing well. And it, it's a really exciting offensive line that thrives specifically in pass protection. And then Jason Kelsey this past season had a career year in pass protection, one of the best passing blocking grades of his career, while also maintaining high run blocking grades that we've seen from him since he, you know when he was playing at Cincinnati. Yeah, um, they're just going to be a sneaky. I was listening to Sam and uh, Mike on the pod this morning, um, 
and them just talking about this offensive line being the best in football and thinking about that if that's the case again um the last thing they were number one in pff they won the super bowl so if that's the case like are we should we start preparing for the eagles back in uh super bowl it's it's interesting <laughs> healthy carson wentz um like that group right Oh, absolutely. They have a very, very talented roster. And at the quarterback position, if Carson Wentz can stay healthy, there's still question marks about his game. But if he can stay healthy behind a great offensive line with the great receivers, John Jackson's back. Alshon Jeffrey's still there. I feel good about that receiving core. I obviously love Zach Ertz being there. He's a fantastic talent in the receiving game. And then defensively, Fletcher Cox, there's a lot to love on the defensive line. Linebacker isn't a, isn't a necessarily a strength for this team, but it's not a weakness. Secondary, there are some concerns. Specifically last year, you saw what happened when they got played by injuries. But I think there's enough talent on this roster to overcome a lot of that, specifically because that offense is going to be so good that they're going to be putting points on the board, allowing the defense a little breathing room. Um, how many more dominant Aaron Rodgers years do we have left? Whew, I think health is the question that comes to, you know, or the concern that comes to mind for as long as he's healthy. And I think, I don't think he was totally healthy last year. If he can come into this year and have a clean bill of health for 16 games, you're going to see a dominant season. If he can do that for, you know, have that be that healthy for three, five more years, I think you're going to still see dominant seasons. It's up to that shoulder, to be honest. If he, if he starts to wear down as the, you know, his career progresses, you'll see, you know, less and less dominant play from him. But I, I really do think a, a healthy Aaron Rodgers across a 16-game season will always be a top-three quarterback in the NFL. The best-graded Oakland Raider this year will be who? Ooh, that, I love that question. Let me think. Hmm. If Gary Allen Conley plays 16 games, he'll be the highest-graded player on the Raiders roster. I 100% believe that. I think he's going to thrive in this team. You saw him thrive when asked to play press coverage at two man and one and cover one. I think he started he started to grasp you know cover two playing curl flat and, and uh, or curl flat and cover two and also playing the deep third and cover three. He started to grasp it. It's not something he did at Ohio State, but he started to grasp it with very little experience. You know, you forget that with that injury in year one and even some injuries in year two, he hasn't really even played a full season's worth of snaps in the NFL. He's slowly but surely getting his feet wet in the NFL from an experience standpoint, I think really this has all the talent in the world to be a very good player in the NFL. He just needs more time. He got benched for no reason last year. He was being sitting on the bench, a health, not a healthy scratch, but healthy sit for the Oakland Raiders last year in favor of Rashawn Melvin and Daryl Worley. It, it was absurd. He need, this kid needs snaps. And when he does play, he plays well. You saw that. Late in the season against Baltimore, one on one with Michael Crabtree, and, and, and among other times, I think even in Cincinnati before he went out with concussion, very very good play for him. I, I really do like Garyon Conley a lot. I think teams should just keep drafting uh, Ohio State DBs. Seems like that's going pretty well for most teams. Oh, uh, you might as well. I think they, I mean <laughs> until they've been playing such a great scheme that it helps develop cornerbacks. I think similar to LSU, you call those mm. DBU with LSU and uh, and Ohio State. They play a ton of press man, and when you play a ton of press man, that prepares you a lot better for the NFL. Because a press man, and you know, talking recently, I had an interview with Bryce Hall, the University of Virginia cornerback, who's projected to be maybe a first round pick in 2020. He was talking to me about the difference between press man and zone. And zone, it's like he's saying pure athleticism, a lot of instinct, a lot of read and react. But with with man, I expected him to say athleticism. I expected him to say speed and you know that match and mirror ability. He said it's all discipline. It's all learning to be disciplined with your feet. Discipline with your eyes, not you know, not uh, biting on uh, certain breaks and film study and all this stuff. And hearing him talk about man coverage, it really makes a ton of sense to me when you see cornerbacks that play man coverage well at the college level, at an Ohio State, at an LSU. That's why they translate to the next level. They know how to be disciplined. They know how to play man, press man coverage at the college level, and that for translates into solid play in the NFL early doors. Biggest Bears defense question is what? Hmm. I think I think it's 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 okay. This is gonna be an interesting answer. It's Eddie Jackson. How much does he mm. regress? It's how much does he regress? I still think he's going to be a top player in the NFL. His grade though was so high. He turned defensive turnovers and touchdowns at an absurd rate, an unsustainable rate. He had turnovers at an unsustainable rate. I just do not expect him to have seven defensive touchdowns in 2019. I think maybe that drops down to two or three. It's just it was absurd to see how successful he was last year. And I'm not saying it's luck, but 
you know, what Derek, you know, our, uh, Eric Eager and George Chihuri have seen with specifically with turnovers and some other, you know, other uh, metrics like sacks. Some of that can be kind of luck dependent. Fumble recoveries for touchdowns, a little bit luck dependent and less predictable year over year. I think with Eddie Jackson, you're going to see that regression back towards the mean. A lot of players on that defense could progress back to the mean. You saw some career years from several players along that on that defense. So it'll be interesting to see. I think regression is expected for the Chicago Bears defense overall. How much regression will be the question mark? And I think that's up to some of their stars to kind of hold tight and still perform at an elite level. With Tyreek Hill back in the fold in Kansas City, would you put them back on the at the top spot in the AFC hierarchy going into 2019? I refuse to put Tom Brady and company in, in any spot but number one in the AFC right now. I think mm. they're still okay. still a very, very good team, coached well with a great quarterback and a great defense. I really do think in Foxborough, they, they're hard to beat. I mean, it's not unbeatable. You saw that with Kansas City. However, I still think Patrick Mahomes entering year three, if Tyreek Hill doesn't get suspended, I'm not sure what that situation's go, how that situation is going to unfold. That offense is, again, going to put up a ton of points. Is Patrick Mahomes going to throw 50 touchdowns again? I don't think so. I still think he could throw 30, maybe 35-plus, an absurd season by all degrees. But, again, I go back to that defense. Their secondary for somehow got worse, and their pass mm. rush also got worse. It's going to be very difficult for that defense to be you know, even comparable to last year, and it wasn't good last year. I think that's, that's a bigger concern for Kansas City, in my opinion, losing D. Ford, and, and um, you know, also losing um, Justin Houston, that, that, those are two big pieces. Those are two big pieces. You also lose Steven Nelson, who was the Chiefs' best quarterback last year, and honestly, a number two quarterback at best in the NFL. I think the Chiefs' defense has a lot of concerns, in my opinion. Maybe not enough to push them out of a playoff spot, but enough to definitely be concerned heading into the season. Is Eric Berry still a free agent? I believe so. I think he is still a free agent. That's so sad. Oh, I know, man. it definitely is. God, um, who is the best available free agent still? Trey Boston died down, but there were some. Pretty I, I'm good a big names fan of Trey Boston. I think Trey Boston mm. is a guy who's who played really well in a, a bunch of different teams in the past years because he can't hang on. Those safety positions left to dry a lot. And Trey Boston played well with the Chargers. He played well with Arizona Cardinals. I, I guarantee you, maybe sometime in the preseason, if not early in the season, he gets signed again and turns in high production. You don't see a lot of guys like Trey Boston that can play that deep half, or not that deep half, but that deep third in that cover three, or even the deep, you know, deep hole in a cover one. Like Trey Boston, that closing speed and that range is is rare, and that's what he thrived in, in you know, in previous regimes. I think it'd be really surprising if he spends the entire 2019 season off the roster. Can Dalvin Cook and Kirk Cousins survive behind a bad offensive line in Minnesota again this year? You know, it, it's tough to say. I think Kirk Cousins, for the start of the season, played above expectation under pressure, and towards the end of the season, started to fall below expectation under pressure. I do not expect anything different, really, in 2019. I think there's going to be some highs and there's going to be some lows, and that just speaks to the volatility of quarterback play under pressure. I've said it multiple times on different radio shows and podcasts, but play under pressure at the quarterback position is as volatile as it gets. So you could have a Case Keenum year or a Derek Carr year in 2016 under pressure, being the top five of the NFL among quarterbacks in passing grade under pressure, and the very next year be one of the worst in the NFL under pressure because it's, it's a volatile kind of nature. You know, pressure comes in different ways. Is it from the, just the left tackle? Is it from all, you know, all positions at once? Like you saw sometimes with Minnesota, Arizona last year. I think that's the big thing. I think with Kirk Cousins, he needs more clean pockets to win in the NFL. He's not going to get a ton in Minnesota. What would a Matthew Stafford trade look like? Oh, wow. Hmm. I can't imagine it being less than a day two. And it has to be for a team that, you know, thinks that they can push, push, you know, push with Matt Stafford with a great supporting cast, which, I mean, he hasn't had, he's had bad supporting cast in Detroit, but there's been some times where, you know, this thing could go, you know, go pretty far and he hasn't really delivered. I think, a day two pick would make sense, but it would be a team that thinks, you know, they think there's a quarterback away. And I don't know if there's, you know, a ton of teams in the NFL right now that feel that way. You know, maybe Denver and that offense, you know, Emmanuel Sanders coming off a torn Achilles. That's tough. I, I think there's not a ton of teams in the NFL right now that feel like, I feel like, are quarterback away, especially a quarterback of Matthew Stafford's kind of abilities. I don't know. I think it would be a, diff- a difficult trade. He's, you know, he's expensive and he's not a guy that, you know, Win, you know, makes his surrounding talent better. He needs a supporting cast to win the NFL. 
think he's not a guy that you'd really want to spend more than a day two on, and that's if you're in a pinch. Yeah, I you look around the league, just about every team has a good quarterback, at the very least an average quarterback, and I I don't even think the Broncos are in there now with the Drew Locke stuff. I mean, I guess that makes the most sense. I mean, I just go back and forth. I'm like, maybe the Steelers, just if they think Ben Roethlisberger, this is it this year, and just having him as insurance, and he goes the Teddy Bridgewater route. I, I don't know. There's really not, like you said, a great example. I think the juiciest one would be like Dallas. That always intrigued me. Of just if you gave him Amari Cooper in this group, is he better than Dak in Dallas? I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think a situation that comes to mind is a few years ago or a handful of years ago in the Oakland Raiders. I think we're around four and four, or five and four, somehow like finishing better than what people thought with Jason Campbell. And then Jason Campbell gets her, and they trade the farm for Carson Palmer, thinking that maybe they, you know, if they trade if they trade enough capital to get Carson Palmer under center this year, they can finish what Jason Campbell started and potentially make a playoff push. They didn't. They overspent for Carson Palmer and end up kind of setting the franchise back for years. If a situation like that occurs, maybe Dak gets her, maybe Big Ben gets her, and you make it make make a big push for a quarterback like Matt Stafford to kind of finish the year on a high note. That would be the situation maybe where I see a Stafford trade exist. Redskins, they have the most expensive offense in football. Um, where do they grade? Mm, I, I think then the quarterback position is a big, big question mark. I think the offensive line needs to stay healthy more than anything. Trent Williams and Brandon Scherf need to stay healthy. I think Jordan Reed needs to stay healthy. Josh Dobson needs to stay healthy. There's so much health concerns there with a shaky quarterback situation. Even if Haskins is thrown in by week five because Case Keenum is Case Keenum, he's not going to be great out of the gate. He's not a guy that, you know, get one year of starting experience Ohio State. This, this is a guy that needs time in the NFL to develop. Case Keenum has had time to, in the NFL to develop, and he's not going to get, you know, we know what Case Keenum is. He's not a guy that elevates his supporting cast. He's a guy who leans on them to win games. And the Washington Redskins has a banged up supporting cast of using, you know, previous years as data. I think this Washington Redskins team is really needs to tread water for as long as this Alex Smith contract is kind of plaguing their cap. And then once that gets off the books and they're able to spend big, whether it's on the defensive side of the ball or the offensive side of the ball, that's when they can really start to make a push, especially if Dwayne Haskins starts to show a little bit in year one. I think he starts like week two. It just sucks because if they had Alex Smith, a healthy Alex Smith, all of this makes a lot more sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. everything makes a lot more sense. It's a lot more of a clean fit. You can like that whole Kansas city model makes a lot more sense. Everything makes a lot more sense. If Alex Smith does not have just the devastating injury that he did. And that's not the Redskins fault, but at the same time, this is just a weird situation to be in. Um, Why can the saints continue to survive with a terrible defense? Well, I think their defense is, is is it's not terrible. It, it, it has. I mean, their secondary is pretty there. terrible. Yeah, I, I mean, I like Marshawn Lattimore. I, I think I, Marshawn Lattimore had what a down year to him after last year. That, that's see, that's a great question. I think it, it, he played against some, you know, some better receivers. I think there was you know higher expectations for him, and therefore he was going against some of the bigger guys. I mean, Mike Evans in Week One torched him, and I think you know he got a little bit. Of, I think he not, not necessarily talking. I'm not going to dive into his mentality, but. He definitely had higher expectations in year two, faced some better receivers in year two, and I think he learned a lot this past season. He still earned above a 70.0 overall grade, still ended up playing you know, really well for a year two cornerback, but definitely not the level of play we found from him after seeing how you know outstanding he was in year one. I think you could easily see him bounce back in year three. You know, outside of him, though, I do agree that there there's not you know some question marks at linebacker, which is again not the worst place to have question marks. So linebacker similar to running back, it's becoming an increasingly less valuable position right. to be good at. You know, the best two linebackers in the NFL, Bobby Wagner and Luke Keekley, are great coverage linebackers. After that, you know, you pretty much kind of take anyone. Jalen Smith, Leighton Le- Le- Vander Ash, Darius Leonard. Deion Jones. Deion Jones. Yes. Deion. yes, yes, that's fair. That's fair. There's, there's maybe a handful of names you throw in there that are playing, like, above expectation and adding value to the defense because they're great coverage players. But it's very rare to find a consistent high-end coverage off-ball linebacker. When you have one, it does great things for your defense. When you don't, you need to build elsewhere. And you can with better and more valuable players, corners, safeties, pass rushers. And the Saints have a good you know, good group of pass rushers. I think Sheldon Rankin, man, had such a good year last year and then tore his Achilles late. It's going to be tough for him to come back from that injury, but he was playing so well. You really have to hope he can have a Cameron Wake 
you know, similar to Cameron Wake recovery on the Achilles side of things and come back. And then with David Onyemata suspended for, you know, game one. But after that, I think he could be a really good breakout candidate for the Saints defense. Cameron Jordan is fantastic. And you throw in maybe a bounce back from Marshawn Lattimore. This defense doesn't look that bad. And with true reason, Michael Thomas on the other side of the ball and Alvin Kamara too, with a great offensive line, the Saints team is definitely one of the favorites in the NFC. Can you explain to me why the Atlanta Falcons are not running as much 11 personnel as the Rams did last year? Man, that's that, 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 a great piece on this. Mm-hmm. I saw that where the Falcons were last year. They were 22nd. When you have arguably the best three-man wideout trio, and to only run 11 personnel less than half, like, what? I was so mad. I was mad the entire day about all of this. I'm like, with Ridley, Jones, and Sanu, it's like, what? what, what are we doing? What? Yeah, I, I don't I don't really get it. I think there's only, you know, you look at the San Francisco 49ers, it kind of makes uh, sense for them not to play a ton of 11 because they like their tight ends and they like their fullback. They're paying that guy like they like them, so they might as well start him yes. and play him a ton of snaps. But with Atlanta, your tight end, too, is not a strength. So to throw him out there as much as they did doesn't make a ton of sense. To throw, full, you know, different you know different players outside of that number three wide receiver didn't make sense. And with Matt Ryan there and, like you said, the receiving talent you spoke to, they should be playing a lot more 11 personnel. I think they thrive with it. Yeah, I don't get it. So um, if they don't, if like 92% of their uh, offensive play calls this year are not 11 personnel, I think <laughs> you have to clean house. Like the the Rams were egregious. I think if Gurley hadn't gone down the last couple weeks of the season last year, I think they're, I, f- I wish I still had the stats in front of me, but it's just, I think it was like 100 and something plays total. They didn't run 11 personnel. Like, that's all they did. It was just the cup, um, Robert Woods and uh, uh, Brandon Cook show just all the time. They would never mm-hmm. move away from it, like over and over. And I'm sure you are very familiar with that. But I just thought it was funny how much Sean McVay was like, well, if you can't stop it. We're just going to do this over and over again until you can. And uh, it yeah. didn't happen until the, the Super Bowl. And I think, um, honestly, with Sean McVay, it's less of like, um, this is his system. He runs 11 personnel more than anyone. That's what he's known for. It's more of, Hey, I got three amazing wide receivers. The fact that you think I'd leave Cooper Cup on the sideline to run twelve or twenty-two, you're 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 crazy. It's just not going to happen. Right. I'm going to run eleven personnel to get my best eleven out there. And what's what's interesting about this conversation when we're bringing up personnel, we're bringing up you know personnel usage. Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona ran more, you know the second most ten personnel at Texas Tech over his last mm. three years at Texas Tech. The only guy that's running more 10 personnel than him is the guy that taught him to do it, Mike Leach in Washington State. If, if, if Cliff Kingsbury brings that 10 personnel to the NFL, which last year the average usage of 10 personnel is 8% of plays last year, if he comes in and throws 40%, 50% of 10 <laughs> personnel, give me Hakeem Butler, Andy Isabella, Larry Fitzgerald, and Christian Kirk on the field at the same time and watch this air raid flow, I'd be really excited to see that. I think it'd be It'd be, I'd be so upset if you know he converts his offense, plays a little bit more eleven, you know, with Caleb Wilson, that seventh round pick they picked up. I'd be pretty upset because I want to see this guy, you know, bring the air raid to the NFL. Let's let's stop playing around. I agree, one hundred percent. More, pro, this is a good transition. More pro bowls in five years. Kyler Murray or Jimmy Garoppolo? Oh, I'm I'm going Kyler. I, I think mm. not because I feel, not because I don't like Jimmy Garoppolo. I just like Kyler a lot, and I think the one year of experience. That sample size concern is big with PFF, and we're definitely not putting all of our eggs in that basket, but we do really feel good about, one, his accuracy was on par with what Baker Mayfield did over three years at Oklahoma, and Kyler Murray was on par in that one year he did start, and also what he adds you know, as a runner. And I think you know, with PFF, we, we speak to you know, running backs. We don't say running backs don't matter, but we do think rushing production is largely uh, replaceable at the running back position. Running, rushing production at quarterback is not nearly as replaceable. And if you're able to add as a quarterback, as you know, running the football with your legs, we saw with Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson, it makes you a lot more valuable as a QB in the NFL. And I think Kyler Murray, in addition to design runs, he can run, you know, design runs, read options very well because he's an elite athlete, but he has a very good sense for when to tuck and scramble, when to drop his eyes and go. And I think him as a scrambler and his, as a creator you know, in Cliff Kingsbury's offense could do a lot of damage, especially with the weapons he has. And they're not great, but I love Andy Isabella. I think Hakeem Butler adds value. And Larry Fitzgerald in the slot, I mean, I'm ready to go. I agree. Um, which quarterbacks does Josh Allen gray better than this year? Oh, man, you're asking a tough question there. I think, uh, how about I throw a hot take here? I think he'll grade over, uh, above uh, Mitch Trubisky. 
Oh. Maybe he might grade above Mitch Trubisky. And I think other quarterbacks might grade below him. Derek Carr. I don't Lamar know. Derek Jackson. Carr has had a really, a really tough couple of years. And I think it would be, t- mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising if Josh Allen with that, you know, high average depth of target, John Brown added to the mix, Cole Beasley added to the mix, maybe have a little bit more success. It's hard to rattle off a bunch of names. I don't imagine Case Keenum ranking below him. But Josh Allen, I think, bounces back a little bit. I think he, he, he get, you know, he adjusts to the speed of the NFL. He's still very inaccurate. But I think you can, you can work around that as the Bills understand that, hey, this guy's not the most accurate guy in the books. He's not Drew Brees or Tom Brady. But what he does, he does very well, and that's throw the football deep. And we got John Brown, and we got Cole Beasley, who has a pretty decent catch radius and sure hands. We can win with this kid. Let's not think he's Drew Brees. Let's think he's Josh Allen. Throw the ball deep as, many, as much as we can because this guy's got a cannon and hope the big plays come. All right, six more questions. So let's breeze through these real quick, and we'll wrap up. Um, will Tampa Bay's defense be good enough to compete in the NFC South this year? I don't know. Good enough, sure, because I think their offense is going to put up a ton of points. Yes, yeah, see, I think the offense is going to be great. Like I'm expecting a big year, but I just it's asking a lot of Todd Bowles to make a, a big jump with this group that was just so so bad under Mike Smith the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see. Um, let's say Cam Newton play 16 games. If he gets 16 games for the Panthers this year, would you say that they are a guaranteed playoff team? Not a guarantee. I don't think they are a guarantee. Okay. If they play 16 games, I think they'll push. I think they'll push for even the NFC South, but I think they're not a guarantee just because that division is so good. I think there's a ton of talent in that division. Even Tampa Bay into the mix, all four teams could do some damage this year. There's a lot of high potential in that division, and therefore the wild card spot becomes even tougher. I think Cam Newton – as good as he is and you know, as a runner and what he adds to that offense, even at full 16 games, he's going against Drew Brees, Matt Ryan, and what we think is that you know, Jameis Winston with this pairing with Bruce Arians could do really well in 2019. I think it's too tough a division to put a guarantee on it. They were, what, 5-1 and one when he went down and he couldn't throw 20 yards downfield last year? And then we saw him <laughs> before that? Like, I... This team was going to be a playoff team last year if he doesn't get hurt. Um, also, just... I'm, I'm waiting for that big-time piece on... Um, what happens to the Panthers once it's revealed? Like I, uh, that whole Cam Newton stuff, and he should not have been allowed to play football down the stretch. Like once he was out, I, I can't throw the ball twenty yards downfield. Like why are you throwing him out there? Why are you putting your franchise quarterback through this when he physically can't do it? Um, all kinds of crazy weird stuff. But um, can the Bengals win the AFC North without Jonah Williams? Your favorite? Uh, I would say no. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I'm really big. I'm really big on the Cleveland Browns, and I think if the Cleveland Browns don't take the AFC North, it'll be the Pittsburgh Steelers because they still got Big Ben and they still have Juju Smith-Schuster. And the offensive line is good, not great. I mean, up there in the top ten, I think, and I think that that alone makes them at least a contender for the top spot. It's not a safety blanket at number two. The, the, you know, the injuries to the Bengals offensive line, Jonah Williams, and then you got Cordy Glenn getting forced back out the left tackle where he didn't play well last year. And then now you just lose Clint Bowling to retirement. You're going to be trotting out John Jerry and Christian Westerman. Westerman, a PFF favorite, but on a limited sample size. That's not good. Andy Dalton, as we saw last year, went under pressure a ton. Doesn't play that well. I think, you know, Zach Taylor brings a play-action heavy attack. That'll help Dalton and company a ton. But that that Bengals defense is still bad. You know, yeah, that offensive line got from bad last year to possibly worse in 2019. I think it's too, too many holes for this Bengals team to really compete. Join me on Pittsburgh winning the Division Island. Um, I'm firm in this camp. I've never been more convinced of anything outside of the thing that I'm actually going to say to wrap up on the last question. So we're not there yet. Um, who should trade for Melvin Gordon? Oh, I was thinking about this today. Houston Texans. Houston Texans mm, trade Jadavion like Clowney. Who, Jadavion Clowney, who's maybe a little bit upset his situation. You know, J- Chargers would love a, di- you know, not diverse, but a versatile edge defender slash pass rushing piece. He could play a blitzing role off the edge. He can rush him. It's, you, know, you could do so much with him and what is run as a dime-heavy defense. I would love a J.V. McClowney fit there. And Houston, Texas need a running back, and they just might be not you know dumb enough to, to trade you know, a, a pass rusher like J.V. McClowney for Melvin Gordon, whose you know, pr- production both as a passer and as a runner is replaceable. Okay, I like I I like this a lot because we've all we all wanted Le'Veon Bell in Houston in the summer. That's where I wanted um, Le'Veon Bell to end up, just to give um, Hopkins and Watson another weapon. But this is a good way of transitioning to the Texans because apparently you read my notes. Um, does Deshaun Watson need an average offensive line to win the AFC South? Mm, I think I, I really do think so because I think Andrew Luck 
what we saw from him kind of after week nine, after week 10 last year was special. This kid isn't going to be in the conversation for top five, top three in passing grade in 2019. And in my opinion, oh, 100%, he's back. With T.Y. Hilton, with Frank Reich's scheme, with a great offensive line. It's the Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl run all over again. You got Frank Reich, you have a great offensive line, you have good, not great receiving core, and a very, very good quarterback. And you know, what was Carson Wentz and what is now Andrew Luck. I really think this Colts team is going to you know, really surprise people. They surprised people last year, and I think they're going to take it the next step in 2019. Last thing, here we go. Um, am I crazy to believe that I am 99% certain that the Denver Broncos are going to be a playoff team this year? Yes, you're, you're, you're crazy. You're sure. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't get on board. I think, I will say this. And that I de- my can I make a quick of- case? The defense <laughs> yeah. is going to be top five in defensive DVOA. Like, go ahead and lock that up. They're going to be top five. Vic Vangio and that group, they're going to be top five defensive DVOA. Mike Munchak being the the offensive line coach there now, and then getting a Kyle Shanahan disciple as their OC, I I think Cortland Sutton is going to be a star, and he's going to break out. Like, I there's a recipe for them to be Bears 2.0 this year, and I think they're going to win a lot of games, and they're going to be a playoff team. This is happening. I'm not sure if it's going to be Drew Locke or Joe Flacco as their quarterback in December. I just... I know that this is going to be a playoff team. I, I promise you. Austin, I, believe I, in me. You, you, you made a great case. And I think you made a great case, one, because I thought I had a, a crazy Broncos take. I think Joe Flacco could have a little bit of a bounce-back year behind Munchak's offensive line that has a ton of potential if they can stay healthy. Connor McGovern will play center where he was terrible last year. He was better at guard, had to move into center to replace Matt Paradis in Week 9. But if he gets a full offseason at center – you know, starts playing even in a ball, you know, at average to above average at center. There you go. That's a great piece. And Ronald, Ronald Leary, Reisner, he, we got him in there. Ronald, exactly. If Ronald Leary can stay healthy, Dalton Reisner at guard, I think it's going to be a road grader. You add Juwan James, who has been good, not great his entire career, which in PFF terms is fantastic. If you have a consistent production at tackle, that's great. There's a question about Garrett Bowles. I don't know if he's going to be able to take the next step, and that could be an Achilles heel for this offensive line. Maybe Munchak speaks the magic and gets it done. Joe Flacco in that system, I think, could play well. I think Emmanuel Sanders coming back would be huge for them. And defensively, Banjo and what they have here, it's going to be good. But what I, what I think keeps the Denver Broncos from maybe making a playoff spot, and why I'm not, maybe not 99% sure, is that the AFC is chock full of talent. You're telling me Houston's not pushing for a wild card? You're telling me the Los Angeles Chargers aren't pushing for a wild card? Kansas City Chiefs will win the division if not push for a wild card? There is too much talent in the AFC for me to think the Denver Broncos with a combination of Joe Flacco, even if a better year with Drew Locke is going to make that, you know, sixth spot in the AFC. I just can't see it. Well, a few months from now, when uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers are hosting a playoff game and the Broncos are traveling to some team, because they're not going to win the division, the Chiefs are going to win the division, but they're going to be in some city and you're like, oh my God, they actually pulled it off. Shout out to the Broncos and Chase for calling these two things months in advance. Um, I don't know. I just, Bryce Callahan, love him. He followed Vic Fangio. Everything about them, I, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I can't shake the feeling that this group is just going to be good. And Noah Fant, probably going to be a star there in that system. Kyle Shanahan loves his tight ends, and I could just see him becoming like a big, a big dude um, in that scheme. Um, I like, uh, what do we even call him? Because we can't call him Kyle Shanahan 2.0, but like whatever the guy, he was what, the QB coach? in san francisco and they let him move on because it's an upgrade for job stuff and i don't know love philip Lindsay. everything about it makes sense to me so that's that's i'm not i'm gonna die on this hill austin but uh <laughs> is there anything we need to check out from you this week on youtube on profootballfocus.com what uh what do we have in line on the content creation front on pro football focus on the NFL side, tomorrow we're dropping our 32-team run defense rankings. Edited that tonight, and it's going to be good. Renner wrote it. should be great. And then later in the week, we'll be uh, rocking our pass rush rankings, including all the new pieces that all you know all teams added. It should be another nice piece. And on the fantasy side, I'd look out for Jeff Rackliff's uh, tiers pieces. He does a great job of ranking wide receivers and tight ends. And last week he did running backs and quarterbacks in tiers by round. And I think if you're a fantasy football junkie, I think it's a great, you know, great series that Jeff Blackwell's running right now. A lot of good content. We're gearing up for the season. I am literally waking up every day wishing it was August 1st. I'm ready for this Hall of Fame game. Like, you know, just see your Broncos. I'm ready to see your – oh, no, it's not the Broncos in the Hall of Fame game. But still, I was – no, it yeah, is. I thought it was Falcons-Broncos. Yeah, you're right. It is. I knew I was excited for yeah. a reason. I'm excited to see your Broncos. Kick off the preseason one and zero. Maybe my Falcons. You know, 
I'm excited. I'm excited for you on Ogwa. Yes. His name, by the way, Rich Scangarello. Scangarello? That's right. Scangarello. Mm-hmm. Rich Scangarello. I'm never going to remember this. We're going to have to rename him. Um, all right. Well, anyway, go check out Austin's great work. Watch him on YouTube. And uh, thanks so much, man. Talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you. The Chase Thomas Podcast for people who have nothing but time to kill. Chase Thomas. It's like I can feel the millions of people hearing this and I'm already bummed out that I did it. I don't know. I don't do this anymore. All right. We are back on the Chase Thomas Podcast and I am now joined by someone from the Yukon blog and Yukon all over the news. They are... Back in the news, Randy Etzel's not saying stuff really. Um, he's he wasn't saying anything, and it became like a running gag that he didn't know anything, and he was tweeting it out and loving the youth, youth culture. Randy Etzel, king of that. But to talk about everything going on with UConn and this brave new world that they are entering—that's also kind of like an old world that they've already been in. Um, Aman, good evening. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Chase, thank you so much for having me. So I'm kind of a doofus because it took me until right before we started recording what, uh, how, like how your uh, username on Twitter worked and the pun there. Um, so uh-huh. that, uh, little embarrassing on my front, but, um, <laughs> I, I respect it. Otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to talk about UConn. I know, um, this has just been uh, a lot happening in a very short amount of time, but, UConn, they're back in the Big East, at least for basketball. Um, was this des- the desired result, not only for UConn fans, but also um, coaches um, at UConn? Mm-hmm. I think if you were to poll UConn fans continuously across these past six years as as they've been members of the American Athletic Conference, um there there's probably always a healthy chunk of the fan base that that wanted something like this a return to the big east or uh, or you know reuniting with the those catholic seven schools i think in the first few years you know yukon won a championship uh, in men's basketball its first first year in the aac uh Kevin Ollie had recruiting going well, so maybe there was this belief that it would all work out. And then the whole point of being in the AAC was to be in the best football conference possible. So, so maybe a couple of years in, um, you know, maybe that that sentiment waned a little bit. But then I think over the past couple of years, it really grew, especially as you could kind of see the conference situation just wearing on UConn um, financially on attendance at basketball games and um the football was struggling too and there are there are arguments that even if this is the best football conference outside of the group of five maybe it's just not the best place for yukon a northeast geographically isolated relatively young fbs program to succeed uh so i think uh from the perspective of anyone who cares about the basketball teams and the coaches themselves in a vacuum, um, you, you have to be really excited about the move because it's, it's undoubtedly better for the basketball programs. It aligns them better in terms of recruiting footprint. It um, brings a lot more excitement to uh, regular season conference games. It will allow fans to engage more with the team by being able to more easily attend away games which, mm. uh, you know, probably completely dropped off for Husky fans uh, at AAC. So I think there are a lot of benefits there. Donations have gone up. There's a lot of other stuff. But I think, um, you know, even even though it leaves football in an, in an unusual position, I think the benefits to the athletic department and then the, the programs that UConn has built its reputation on um, are worth it given – this highly uncertain era of, of college sports and revenue generation uh, that we live in. So you touched on a couple things there. Um, something that I thought about when you're just talking about their divisions and just what was going on there and revenue and all of their stuff. I wonder 
And this was something I thought when they first left the Big East, the Big East dissolved and they were kind of screwed. They were the last team out and all this stuff. But like, I always had the the thought that they would eventually wind up in the a, the the ACC, and I wonder if that's what they always thought. Do you think if you gave UConn administrators years ago some true serum that they thought they would end up there at some point, or do you think that they always just uh, they they didn't really know and that this was all uncertain for the foreseeable future? I uh, yeah, I would a hundred percent agree. I I would say that in twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Um, even for a few years after that, um, for sure, UConn thought, uh, and I think every you know everyone thought that that further uh, Power Five expansion was inevitable. Uh, was kind of this this prevailing sentiment, but I think a lot of different factors changed that, and uh, including. TV revenue becoming uncertain, ESPN experiencing, you know, some financial losses, um, the 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 brazen addition uh, or expansion of those conferences not necessarily leading to some of the quality benefits that they that they would have hoped for. Um, I, I think for a lot of different reasons, it started to look like that door was closing. Um, but yes, I would say that. Uh, as recently as a couple of years ago, uh, UConn's administration probably was holding out hope for an invitation to the ACC or or Big Ten at least. Yeah, just kick out there, just calling uh, Big Ten commissioner um, Delaney about like, are are you serious with Rutgers? Do they have to go four ninety three in this conference <laughs> right. before you give us an invite and kick them out? Um, right, because they would make a lot more sense in the AAC than. Um, the Big Ten, and I think a lot of people would be like, "Yeah, that makes sense." Um, right. But you touched on recruiting too. So, how does that affect um, basketball and football specifically? Like moving to it looks like they're going to be independent now in football, at least for 2020, and we'll see what uh, it looks like beyond that. But um, with basketball as well, like moving back into the Big East and not playing the AAC and competing with uh, UCF, <laughs> um, right, right? Things like that. Um, do you like how does that affect it like how why did they get a bump from that yeah i think the biggest will be for basketball it, just in that uconn's recruit, recruiting footprint uh has been to uh or, or recruiting historically has been to be successful in new york city boston um and then kind of that that prep school uh, North, you know, New Jersey Northeast Prep School uh, circuit that that contains a lot of really great basketball talent, and there's a lot to work with there. But when you are recruiting these players who are from again Boston, Boston area, New York City surrounding areas, quite frankly, Big East teams, including Villanova. Providence were still beating UConn on the recruiting trail, even Georgetown, um, even after UConn won a championship in 2014. And, you know, just again, some things just matter more than the average ranking of a conference. Uh, so you're a kid from New York or Boston. Do you want to make uh, five trips a year to Texas and Oklahoma? Or do you want to play in a historic basketball conference that plays its conference tournament at Madison Square Garden? Uh, that is also having its own success. So I think for New York City and Boston and just, you know, regional recruits for UConn, uh, it's going to be a, a big boost. And it's it's a better basketball league. You know, I, I, I don't think it should be very controversial to say the Big East for men's basketball certainly and for and for, and for women's basketball just as certainly it's it's a better league. And so um I think I think that's that's going to be something that gives a boost in recruiting as well. For football, it's a little bit trickier, um, but I think there is some some sensible benefit here in that as an independent, UConn can regularly schedule uh, more schools that are in its weight class. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, kind of talking about current time, and then more schools where the fan base has a little bit more of. Um, interest, name recognition, history, whatever you want to call it. So um, UConn fans would rather have games against 
Pittsburgh and Boston College and Syracuse uh, than against, even if they are kind of, you know, just as good on average, UCF, Houston, uh, Navy, what have you. And so I think uh, for that reason, again, you've got regional recruits who are saying, do I want to, do I want to be in Tulsa and, uh, and uh, Florida and then, and then as far flung as multiple schools in Texas and whatever East Carolina is and, or do I want to play, you know, these schools that I've heard of. So um, I think for recruits, the benefit again is just, just more recognition and then um, having a better, a better fan experience at the stadium. So, um, you know, I was there when UConn, in 2015 took on an undefeated Houston team that was ranked 13th in the country and they, and they beat them, but that stadium was not full. And if uh, Pittsburgh was ranked number 13 in the country and, and undefeated that, that stadium would have been full because UConn fans would have shown up in droves to, um, you know, hopefully make it a bad night for a school that they do have some negative energy towards. So um, again, I say I've been saying it over and over, but just again, so, some things matter more than than the average rating or just the quality. And and I think the American Athletic Conference has has taught UConn that um, and and proven that um, because you can't just you can't just uh, manufacture rivalries out of nowhere, Bob Diaco. But uh, you can't just manufacture rivalries out of nowhere, even if the teams are decent, uh, and, and hope it moves the needle in some way if there's not some previous history or experience around it how are uh uconn fans with hurley so far are is everybody still firmly in the hurley camp yeah absolutely um so last year was his first season um i think if you were watching the basketball closing you know the record didn't the record didn't look demonstrably better but if you're watching the basketball, just playing a much smarter version of the game, um, just seems a lot, a lot more together. I mean, it, it was people were wondering a couple of years ago, you know, did this team even practice because they just looked so sloppy out on the court. And um, I, I think they they have really tightened that that piece of it up. Uh, and then he has uh, Hurley has had some early, big early wins on the recruiting trail as well. Um, so, uh, I think first and foremost being a who was a five-star or, you know, top 20 nationally, uh, recruit who enrolled early at UConn. Um, UConn was also able to get Sid Wilson in from uh, a former four-star recruit who originally committed to St. John's. Uh, and then they also added RJ Cole, who was a, All-American, honorable mention, playing at Howard in D.C., Um, but he actually played for Mr. Hurley Sr. uh, over at St. Benedict in New Jersey. So a little bit of familiarity there, but, you know, UConn adds a transfer, a a proven scorer, a versatile guard. So um, some good good wins on the recruiting trail as well, and, and, you know, he's a good soundbite. He says all the right things. He played at Seton Hall, and... um, understands the area came so i think there's there's all of those things are are still true and so uh yes the fan base is is certainly behind hurley and um even this year i would say expectations are not are not super super high Uh, fans of course want to you know there's been a little bit of an ncaa tournament drought uh so fans obviously want to see that end as soon as possible but i think even this year, it's not kind. Of, it's not a um, make the tournament or else kind of deal. Um, even though many fans certainly are saying this could be a tournament team. Okay, so Jim Calhoun, not UConn basketball coach in 2021. That's what you're saying. <laughs> um, not unless he wants to be. Just no, just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, probably not. I think he's. I think he's pretty happy. Um, he's actually. He actually is coaching uh, yeah, in Connecticut, like some super small school, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's called St. Joseph's. It's a it's a Division three private school that mm-hmm. actually used to be an all girls school that just stopped being co-ed. 
um, and then is also launching a basketball program. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think he, I think he likes that a lot. And so, uh, I would be, I would be surprised if even Jim Calhoun wanted it, but I, I also just don't see it happening for UConn. So have you seen the, on, uh, the UConnblog.com, the realistic 2020 football schedule for the Huskies? Mm-hmm. I sure have. Okay. So I, I want to go through this list real quick. Tell me which ones you think that actually aren't going to happen. And you could see somebody else be inserted here. It seems like UMass opener that's there, Illinois, there, Maine, um, Indiana, TCU, um, UAB, Louisiana Tech. There's still some random like AAC feels to the schedule, I think. Um, Army be as close as it is. And I didn't realize that it was on like a 90 minute drive until um, doing some more digging on just UConn's 2020 schedule and everything. That just kind of blew my mind that they're that close. Uh, UL Monroe, Southern yeah. Miss, Virginia Tech, which I like a lot, and then FIU. Um, does that yeah. seem pretty realistic to you? Do you think um, fans should expect something eerily close? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I think 2020 is going to be the weird year because um going to have to replace some games on, on short notice if it does turn out that UConn is able to leave early from the conference um, earlier than the two-year um, quote-unquote standard departure procedure. Nobody has left the AAC before, so, um, you know, we'll see. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I think 2020 will be will be an unusual year, but I think UConn has a pretty good um, offer for for scheduling purposes. So, for regional FCS, that you know, there's there's a lot of reasons to get on the schedule. For uh, of course, UMass and Army being independent, uh, really strong reasons to just have a regular agreement. Um, and then for those higher level. FBS programs, um, you stay FBS, but you're getting a beatable opponent. Uh, so you get a, a little bit of a, of a bump there. And then, um, I think any of, of UConn's, you, you know, quote unquote, historic rivals like a Virginia tech, or, um, there's a series of schools. They kind of played a lot when they were first coming up through FBS. Um, so I would include, I would include schools like Buffalo and uh, BYU, Boise State on that list. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a group of schools that I think will um, be Alabama. just <laughs> yeah, if they want to buy one. Uh, Clemson, <laughs> Clemson is on the schedule, so Clemson did buy one. So oh, there you go. yeah, so I mean, I the think, schedule in the same year for UConn. Yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? I mean, buy buy games are going to be a a strong piece of the revenue answer for UConn football. So, um, no, definitely going to be going to be some buy games for sure. Um, But I think it's a strong value proposition for for those high high major FBS programs because um, they'll they'll beat UConn pretty badly probably, and then still get credit for playing an FBS game. All right, last question. We have to wrap up. Um, is Randy Etzel still the coach um, going into the independent era in UConn football? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think okay. uh, first of all, of <laughs> course, um, you know it's it's no secret UConn uh, athletically is um, incurring some costs. Uh, you may have heard about a, a, a lawsuit protracted i've heard about this legal yes. process yeah exactly so it's kevin great. ollie over uh 10 million dollars yeah and it's, it's it's going really good we've got nothing but great things to say uh, about that um you know they're going to be paying an exit fee they're going to be paying an entrance fee um and so i and then you know randy edsel was not exactly handed uh an incredible uh situation from from his predecessor so uh, and then this uncertainty uh, doesn't help an already down situation. So I think uh, he he really doesn't have a huge, uh, a, a large amount of heat under his seat, uh, even going into this season. And so I would imagine Randy Edsel is still the head coach for, for the independent era of UConn football or whatever happens next. 
Who would be your dream hire? Like dream realistic hire. Obviously there are oh, man. Want it, but who's like your <laughs> if you could persuade cuz it going independent, I feel like I don't know if it helps potential hires or or not, but I I who would be your number one like could we get him? Right, Lashley, bring him back, baby. He's what, 32 now? <laughs> He's the perfect fit to rejuvenate that program. Um, no, I, I, I don't know. Who, who would it be? Who's your best realistic, fun? Yeah. Idea? Well, so that's the thing. It's, it's a really tough, tough nut to crack because a lot of college football's best coaches are, uh, they're, they're recruiting whatever, you know, bases in Texas or, or, the Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi space or Florida. And so, um, you know, you have to come up with a pretty unique strategy at, at UConn. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple because we're just going to have some fun here, but I think Paul Johnson is a really interesting. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. Run the triple. Have, why the heck not? Uh, I mean, run yeah. the triple, frustrate the heck out of people, play a different version of the game because obviously uh, you're not getting the other kind of football players that everyone else wants. So right. uh, maybe maybe try something new. Uh, failing that, um, you know, again, it's it's Tight so dinner. tough. But I'll, I'll I will give you one more good name is Joe Moorhead. Oh, who I is, take that right? Like he's he's so, coaching Mississippi well, State. May, well, maybe Mississippi State doesn't work out, and then maybe he wants to go closer to home. He is a former. He's a former UConn offensive coordinator uh, and former head coach at at uh, Fordham. So he's he knows the area. He's innovative in Fort thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Paul, Paul Pascaloni at one point had Joe Moorhead and Don Brown, currently starring as defensive coordinator at Michigan, uh, on his staff. Who is and, now the uh, DC, I believe, in Detroit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He so checks, man. Shout yeah, exactly. So, so um, is shout Snyder out to Paul old Pasquone. enough to coach UConn? <laughs> um, I, you know, Bill Snyder also did return to the school. He, um, he, he, uh, he does the JUCO thing though, and, and UConn doesn't really have that in its backyard the way uh, K State did. So, I don't know if I, I don't know how that strategy would pan out. I figured it out. Who you got? Oh man. Oh, it's, it's, Bobby, it's Bobby Petrino. Oh, no, 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 no. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Let's bring Jim Calhoun, get Bobby Petrino in there, um, and then we can make Rick Petrino the associate head coach under uh, Dan awful. Hurley. That's awful. I thought you were going to say Dan Orlovsky. Which, oh, which no, is we have to keep him at ESPN. Not, he's a good analyst. I like him. Not an awful idea. Yeah, yeah, he's doing great at ESPN. Um, but... Lane Kiffin, would you do that? Oh, heck yes. <laughs> right? Bring Joey Freshwater up oh. there. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. He would not. He would never do. Why would he leave FIU for for UConn? But you probably um, get Don you know, Brown. Could you get Don Brown? Probably Is not. He ever going to get a head coaching job? I don't know. Don Brown. Pep I, Hamilton. I don't know if he wants. I don't know if he wants one. Not everyone wants one. Pep Hugh Hamilton Freeze. is a, seems like a great Pep, guy. Pep Hamilton is coaching the XFL franchise in DC, so I think Speaking he's of, out. Bob Stoops is available. I think he's been chomping at the bit for some UConn Husky football. I would take Bob Stoops. Bob Stoops uh, beat UConn in the Fiesta Bowl, so you know. Well, hold on. We're as an Auburn fan, um, we are getting it ready for Bob Stoops at Auburn next year. So. Oh really? Yes. You're always you're always looking to, uh, at a new person, even though. I mean, Kirk it's done all like right. it's it's not ending well <laughs> this year for Gus Malzahn. Here's how many times uh, a coach uh, in a lame duck situation where their early season requirement is ten wins and almost winning the most. It, in critical division in college football it's not going to go well because they're not going to win the division they just don't there's no avenue the sec west is just the worst team in the sec west this year is probably the second best team in the east mm. well the he had SEC a good run. west is just ridiculous <laughs> like gus malzahn's getting fired and i i honestly kind of feel bad because there's just no avenue for a first year quarterback with gatewood or Knicks or whoever it is to just um, run the table and beat LSU, Bama, AM, and all these. It's just, it's not realistic. They're going to go like eight and four and still be like the 12th best team in college football. And it just doesn't matter. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I mean, Auburn, you'd think you'd, you think you could be really happy with that just because that's a good, good season, but. No, it's not. Yeah, that's, that's just not, <laughs> no, that's not how it's going to work. Um, all right. Well, we could do this all night, I think, <laughs> just throwing um, uh, just ridiculous things at uh, um, UConn football. But um, 
Thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun. We can read you at the UConnblog.com. Where else can we read you? And is there anything else you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Um, I also run the UConn Rivals site, uh, and then I do some some sports reporting locally. I live in D.C. for Washington City Paper. Uh, so a few right. other places you can find me. Perfect. Well, go do that. You do great work, man. Thank you so much for making the time tonight, and we will have to do this again soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.